Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. To me, when my wife left me, I realized that comedy is noble. People are hurting. And it's good. It's good. It's like a good thing to do. Think about an audience. If you afterwards think about the individuals, the heartbreaks that are in the audience. Some of them are being cheated on. Some of them just got sober. You know what I mean? Some of them, they, they just lost a parent. Two men are two drink minimum in most clubs. They just got sober. <laughs> <laughs> two item. It's a two item minimum here at Stand Up New York. Um, but, and you really are, and I don't use this in a religious way, you're ministering to them. You're ministering in the way that someone bringing chicken soup is ministering to a sick person. So you can really relieve that tension. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to talk about piddly shit? Or are you going to go deep? Most stand-up I see is just reaffirming what the crowd already knows. But I can't stand it. People just go, isn't sex great? Isn't eating great? Aren't movies great? And they're just holding the mirror up and they're just going like, leave the same. And something happens when you're in pain. You realize that you, you have an opportunity to like really rearrange the molecular structure of a lot of people in a positive way. I know I'm being a little bit high-hoped about stand-up, but good comedy can fucking change this because you saw somebody on stage that knows how to alchemize pain into pleasure. And I'm getting emotional, but that's fucking beautiful. We were just, Kate and I were just talking about that. She mentioned some show that's on Netflix that I wanted to watch, and I forgot about it because it mentioned it to me once and then it just goes away and then all I see is like Gilmore Girls. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm like, why? It yeah. needs like an AI. It needs like a, hello, Peter. But, but they, Something they that kind talks of do like, get, guess <laughs> what the two most popular shows on Netflix are. I'm going to guess. Are you ready? Yeah. Because I think they're old shows, right? I think the most, Friends, these are my, don't look at me. Don't give me information with your face. <laughs> I, I play poker. I'm not. Okay, yeah, give me nothing. Mm-hmm. Friends, and oh, it's gonna be obvious. 
it's sure as shit not Stranger Things or anything like that. It's Friends and Mad Men. Those are my guesses. Friends and The Office. I was so close. And the original You do shows. have a good poker face. Either that or you have no joy when other people win. <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, everybody says House of Cards and Stranger Things. But yeah, those, no way. All the original programming no is way. dying on Netflix. Of course. And, and you know... Hulu, like not I, of course. It's a surprise to me too. But I, I had heard that that I, they can't get people to watch new stuff. It, I, the thing I watch is old stuff. Yeah, Val's always watching Friends, and you know, narcissistically, I'm always watching Mad Men. That's why those were my guesses. I'm always watching on Amazon uh, this this little show on HBO called Crashing. And oh, like and my wife gets sick of it. Does she? <laughs> no, no, That's no. Hilarious. No, it's we okay. Together. <laughs> it's okay, but it you know, enough is enough. Mad Men is for me, so my, my poor wife has to watch. I told myself I wouldn't watch it again. I've watched the, the series twice. Crashing. Mad, Mad, Men. Mad Men. I've seen it. Crashing yeah. four times. That's so sweet. So, Mad Men's too long. I have, I'm gearing up for a third time. I think I've watched Mad Men at least six times. Are we rolling? Yep. All right. Well, uh, how, have you rewatched any uh, any other series? Like I've re I've watched Lost about four times. <laughs> no way. The yeah. whole thing. The whole thing. Because I actually like the series finale. Okay. Even though they've like sort of, I know this is not news to you that they like admitted that they didn't know what they were doing. And well, yeah, I could, you could tell in the writing that they they keep on opening up more and more forks in the plot. Yeah, and they'd have no. You could tell they have no clue how they're going to bring right. it together. That's but right. I was fine with it's fine not knowing. Yeah, the end. What is the end? They're in purgatory. Um, no, no, the end is that. Um, I yeah, don't want to ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a show from 1992. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> the, the the end is ha half the show is sort of like a dream sequence, but ha you know, in this final season, and half is uh, you know Jack becomes the new Jacob. Anyway. Oh, he so, does. Yeah, and then Hurley becomes the new Jacob, and then they have an epilogue that most people didn't see. Kind of after the, it was like a new show. Anyway, can I so, tell you something, James? Yes. What I like about Lost, even if I didn't stick with it the whole way, I like what you just said. But what, you, like, even in the first early seasons, and this is like a very spiritual idea, and I'm not trying to force that because we're gonna. I, I really am not. No, but I but it's like about, this. It's about us versus other, right? Yeah. It's about this idea that we're on the island, and then there are the others, and then you realize that the others have their story, and that every other is just another group. You know, this is like a lot of good movies help us tell this. And story. then there's there's this component that the island is this mystery that we can't possibly understand. Yeah, I like. We that never too. understand it. Yeah. You just have to have faith in it, and That's the people right. who do have faith in it survive. Oh, is that right? So you know, I had Dr. Drew on my podcast. Uh, he's not a spiritual person at all. But he's been with a lot of dying people. And this is actually kind of chilling to me. This is not why I'm spiritual, by the way. Although maybe it is. Maybe it is. He was telling me that people that believe in something when they're dying, he's like, they have a much easier time. I was like, that's fucking nuts. Like, he has data on it. It's chilling. I, I don't like it. I, I, I mean, what I don't like about it is I want it to be like more than just something we comfort ourselves with. But it turns out there is this like comforting element for sure. But, I yeah. did it on the cab right over. I was like, yeah, it's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I can... Not because I'm going to heaven. I'm just like, it's all... Whatever's... Like the island. Whatever's happening is happening. And you right. just have to surrender, which is the name of the chapter you folded over for me in that book. It's called Surrender. Right. Like, you don't... I, I like what Dr. Drew is saying because it's not necessarily you have to believe in one specific thing. Like a heaven, yeah. it's, it's that you believe... You know, like in the island, we don't know the answers. We just know there's... Right mystery 
That's right. It's, it's a surrender to mystery. And there's a, t I see, especially in nature, obviously human beings are fucked. But when I look at nature, which is something that speaks to me about the, the lawfulness of the universe, I tend to see something that is positive, that's leaning towards growth and expansion rather than just like meaningless nothingness. Do you think, I mean, obviously, I mean, so your book, which we're talking about, is called, I should introduce you, yeah, Pete fine. Holmes, Star of the They've Asia already show. turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. Well, they, no, I'm they, Kareem. They, they, people, people listen I got on, Kareemed. People listen on their commute, so they're still commuting. We're talking to uh, Pete Holmes, star of HBO's show Crashing, star of uh, the Pete Holmes show, which you could find all over the place. Uh, 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 the podcast, your podcast, you made it weird. Yeah, uh, you've you've been involved in so many different this shows. Is off the dome, James. Mm -hmm. Usually, someone's scrolling through a Wikipedia page when they no, do that. No, no, I'm a fan. And I, I know, watch I a lot of that, your though. your YouTube. I encourage people to actually watch your YouTube set with uh, Conan, which triggered. Uh, Conan uh, asking you to do oh, uh, your show. It was a very good uh, set. Yeah, but that's really good thinking on you. That's like three-dimensional thinking. You're not just like, you're like, which set was it? Because there was a set. There was a set. Yeah. And you can watch it. It's it's Pete Holmes' uh, magic. Well, you know what? It's, it's, it's it, called magic. I didn't just name the clip. <laughs> Pete Holmes' magic. He's magic in this clip. I think, I, think, I think also, though, it's like you even mentioned in the book. It kind of, you sort of uh, uh, evolved... In, well, we'll talk about a whole bunch of things, but in 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 this, you sort of evolved from kind of observational humor to to observational humor that really meant something to you. That's right. And I think that was a big change in your your personal voice. Yeah. Because I think you always had this this um, you know outlook where you're you want to be friends with the audience. You want the audience to like you. You want to be friends with them. You're smiling with them, and mm -hmm. you're taking them along for a ride. But then I, I think at some point it must have occurred to you, oh, I'm going to take them along for a better ride if it's something that's really unique and personally interesting to me that's, yeah. that's buried in the joke somewhere. I completely, yeah, that's right. That's very nice of you to say. But, it, you know, I had a manager I, when I was in New York uh, in the real life that we, dem like, that we dramatized on Crashing, when I was really living that here in the city, I had a meeting with Rick Dorfman, who, was, uh, who is a manager, I believe. Uh, he certainly was at the time. And he was John Mulaney's manager, and, and I think John got me a meeting with him or something. And I was really excited that I was going to get a manager. I, I mean, we have some young comics here today. I don't know if you guys are repped. It seems like everybody's repped. But back in the day, it was, like, hard to get reps. And I really wanted a manager, and I thought that was going to, like, crack things open for me. And um, I was basically just starting out. And uh, he, he did not sign me. And he did something really gracious, though. He, I was in my mother's – I was visiting my parents in Boston – I went into my parents' bedroom to get privacy, and I sat in my mom's rocking chair. And he was like, "I, I like these like kind of intimate details, like your mom's rocking chair." Ah! <laughs> well, you know, James, <laughs> we're painting a picture. <laughs> right, right. It's helping me, honestly. It's helping me remember. I want to be honest with you. And I was sitting there with my iPhone three. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, and he did something really gracious. And I, I've thanked Rick many times, and we've talked about it since then. Because a lot of people won't sign you, but he told me why he wasn't signing me. And he was like, I just, and we put some of these words into Esty's mouth on crashing. She's like, I just don't know what you, what you care about. He's like, what makes you angry? What makes you scared? He's like, you're just another white guy. 
And th- this is, I know that's like kind of a hot thing right now right. is that we're understanding privilege. This is way before that. He was just like, you're just another, he might as well have just said, you're just another fucking guy. Well, 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 uh, and um, I remember the scene where Esty is saying this to you and I've taken that quote and applied it to so many things because you could apply that same, and I'll say the quote that Esty says in a second. You can apply it to comedy, of course. You could apply it to any kind of writing. Because uh, You could apply it to entrepreneurship even. But her quote is, uh, who are you? Why are you? Why now? Yeah. And I think that was so important. Like so many people just like, you know, dribble out their Facebook comments right. from their suburban air conditioned homes, right. like their, their diplomas on the wall. And they go, oh no, you're, you're wrong about climate change, blah, blah, blah. Right. And no one is saying, why should they be saying this? Right. Why now? Why, you know, who are they to be, to, you know, why are they saying this? Like, why right. is this conversation happening? And Facebook makes money on all the anger. That's right. And, the and, fires get all the all the traffic. You right. start a little fire and it gets the algorithm. And this is why uh, my friend Rob Bell is like, that's why we have Trump. Like, we're a fire-seeking society. And that kind of started with social media. That's his theory, not mine. It's very interesting. Right. We're a fire-seeking society. And I think the questions, you know, who are you? Why are you? Why now? Starts to bring the fire a little to you. That's you right. You become the fire. Why are you doing the bit? And and having, I know this sounds a little bit Tony Robbins, but there's something about having an intention. For me, when I do stand-up, my intention is literally, it's very cheesy, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this in front of my my family, my my species, but it's like, <laughs> I I want everyone to feel less alone. I want them to feel, obviously we want them to feel happy and joy, that, that's fine, but like I'd like them to feel like, oh, I, I'm not the only weirdo, so I want to expose some sort of bullshit in myself or in the world that we all have that they can go like, oh, I do that too. But what happened with that Conan set was I was like, everybody is, uh, now when I think I have an idea for a bit, it's because something excites me, right? And this is left brain, right brain stuff. I used to be reciting jokes. That's right brain. You're doing something that you memorize. There's nothing wrong with memorizing, but I'd go up there and I still do it sometimes. I go like, did you know the movie Three Amigos was released in Spanish-speaking countries as Trace Friends? That's a joke that I recite. And that's fine. I like that joke. Right. So that's a funny joke. Like we're sitting, we're we're doing this podcast inside a comedy club. That's the sort of joke that's safe. That's a comedy right. club audience will laugh. And when it, you're starting out, bro, you I almost said brother, brother, <laughs> Hulk Hogan, you need those jokes. <laughs> People don't care. You're one of 15 and you need something that goes like, let me demonstrate that I can write a joke. Right, and you're also trying, you don't want to disappoint the booker. You don't That's want to right. disappoint the oh club. Oh my God, what I'm talking about is is 10 years plus. Mm-hmm. You Maybe. And you start getting into something where you're like, you're just talking to your, your partner or your friends and you realize that you really care about something and that you don't need to script it out exactly. I, You know, you have the bullet points and maybe some of the key phrases written out verbatim but it's something that you know that you can just communicate. So the bit was, everybody hates magic because it's fake. And I'm like, yeah, it's fake. The person's trying to delight you. Don't be an asshole. That, that was the joke. That was like something I really cared about. So it was something silly, but like, I think Conan even specifically said to me at one point, he was sort of like, every comedian, you give a hundred comedians the subject magic, a hundred of them are gonna write a joke about how magic is stupid. You know what I mean? And I was like, well, how can I be true to myself? I wasn't trying to be unique, but it turned out that I, I ended up doing something unique by doing a, a bit that was like in defense of magic. Do you, do you ever see the movie uh, The Prestige? Yeah. So I like, uh, I, 
The prestige was a word that was made up for that movie, but uh, <laughs> I, I just I, ruined the prestige. <laughs> I, I I like the idea of the prestige, which is that there's the the trick. And then when everyone is trying to figure out the trick or, or is shocked, then there's the other trick. Then there's the next trick, which kind of caps off the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and and I feel comedy does that as well, where you sort of have, let's say you have a following premise, then there's a punchline, and then suddenly there's like that extra tag or punchline sure. that or takes it in a complete different direction. you pull it into focus. So the prestige is... For people that aren't familiar with the somewhat niche Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. Oh, not everyone has seen. I know we all watch Christopher this Nolan movies. <laughs> if you have a birdcage with a bird in it and he squashes it with a with a silk over it, and then that's the trick is that he he made the whole thing disappear. The Prestige is making the bird come back, right? So, to me, there is a comedy prestige, and it's often missing, especially if you're going to go like really dark or something. I have a joke about how life is like a piece of pizza because we're all just trapped in this thing where we're just feeding our meat puppets and like the first bite is salty cheesy and your brain lights up and you're like, oh, salty cheesy and you're so happy. And then the second <laughs> bite, it's salty cheesy and you're still so happy, but a little bit less happy, but still pretty happy. And then the third, fourth, five, I do four, four bites, you're still pretty happy, but you're ready for something new. And then there's the crust and you're like, oh, bready, 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 bready. And then you eat three bites of bready, bready. And then when you're done with the bready bready, you're like, you know what would be good? Some salty cheesy. And that's why you have the next piece if you're an, a monster like me. So that <laughs> that might be like the joke, but then like finding some way to land it. Like you can't, what, I'm, what I do, I don't want to just go like, and life is a meaningless cycle of uh, fulfilling needs. I want to take it to a place of like, or, and this is what I do with the audience, we can concede that this is enough right now. And it's just a game that you play with your brain. And it's a trippy thing to get 300 people to just go like, let's just pretend it's okay for one second. Because well, most people, even when they're watching a comedy show, they're like, okay, are we gonna, when are we going to leave? We're going to get, like, we got to get the train. We got to get home. Then what are we going to watch? And what am I going to eat when I'm watching it? I'm going to have ice cream. Oh, then I want some water. Am I gonna, when am I going to go to bed? When am I going to go to bed? How much, you ever do sleep math? How much sleep am I going to get? I'm going to oh, get up at this time. Every day. That's everybody. <laughs> That's everybody. And one of the points of the book is there's something about just going like surrendering and just going, this is enough. I'm doing it right now. Right, it so, makes you happier. So so in, in comedy, sex, God, you have these, it's, it's basically the, uh, the story of your life, but in these interweaving themes of like your search for meaning through religion, you started off as a, uh, you know, super serious Christian as a, as a kid and how yeah. that evolved. And then you, you, you go on this kind of transformational spiritual journey as you, as you look for meaning. And then of course, wrapped up in your religious feelings is your attitudes of, you know, originally guilt and shame about sex and how that evolves. And then of course, interweaving across this is comedy in your comedy career. Right. And a lot, a lot of the comedy stems from this sort of, you correct me if I'm wrong, stems from this, um, the differences between your actual needs and what's in your life. And in the middle there is the comedy. So your needs are, I want to have spiritual meaning, but what's happening in your life is you, but, but, Christian and I'm this and I'm this. And there, there's there's this difference. There's this gap that you have yeah. to bridge. And a lot of your humor is about bridging these gaps. Like sex, you're obviously, 
you know, ashamed of pornography and right. you can't have sex. And that's until why marriage. all the jokes about pornography yeah. still to this day. Right, because you're 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 exploring <laughs> that that they gap that still you still don't with. feel great about it. <laughs> and it, well that's just it is I think I think everybody in life, your your point really is you're everything in everybody in life has gaps, right? We have no, that's these, absolutely right. these things and that comedy we need. should hopefully be the one place where you can explore yeah. those things. Because you have who you're, that's a very madman thing. It's who you, who the world tells you you need to be and who you really are. And what's great about advertising is advertising is always telling you like, it's okay to be who you really are. Eat a pizza. Right, but you know advertising I mean? is also telling you if you drink Coke Zero, suddenly oh, no, you're going to have a great wrong. car and yeah. lots of, yeah, lots of sex. Don't get that. me wrong. It's a fucking lie. I, you know, my hotel was, I just checked out, but it was on Fifth Avenue. So I was walking up and down and seeing how images and bullshit is, is sold to us. And, and we love that. We love thinking if I wear a shirt that says Under Armour that I'm strong somehow, you know, like, it, which is oh, yeah. fucking well, nonsense. I don't have to, if I buy a Lululemon jacket, that I if. worked out that day. <laughs> like that's, that's my workout for the day. Oh, you just helped me realize I sometimes rock a Lulu and it's to look like maybe I'm either about to work out or I did this morning. Yeah, I but already worked out. Neither is Once true. you look like it, the you sweat did it. is because I ate very vigorously. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so don't get me wrong, but I, I think there's a more substantial place to get a inherent, uh, naturally occurring feeling of inherent dignity and worthiness that isn't something that you need to buy. And that for me is a connection with what I call, what you can call isness or thisness, just like your being a part of the lawful unfolding of reality is a quiet place where you can derive. I'll give you, I'll give the comedians an example. I, I, I have a hard time with this. I think we all do getting our value from other people. And as a, you know, spiritual, I don't, none of us like these words, but as a spiritual person, I'm trying to do what I'm telling you. I'm trying to let my participation with isness be enough to give me a general gleam of bliss and hope and joy in my day, right? But I'm susceptible just like everybody. So I went to a dinner with a friend. This is like literally two, three nights ago. And he brought a, a, a friend. So there was a friend of a friend and my friend. And the friend of the friend just didn't seem very happy that I was at this dinner. I, I, I don't know why. They were just kind of being cold to me. And I was like, okay. I kept trying to like involve them. And it just wasn't really working. Then we went to a show. And I did very well. And after the show, the friend of the friend was very interested in me. Suddenly had, I don't mean sexually. <laughs> I just mean suddenly this person had a lot of questions. And was like, oh my God, how did you do that? When did you write that bit? I love that bit. And I caught myself feeling that that high. I was like, you're goddamn right. Like my ego gets the wheel for a second. And I'm like, that's who you were having dinner with. You know what I mean? I'm a special golden boy. And I just proved it. I rang the bell and I spiked the ball and it, and it felt good. But the spiritual part or whatever, that's all fine, by the way. There's no shame here. I was just like, shit, I'm stuck in salty cheesy again. I just had a bite of salty cheesy and I was like, oh, life is good. And I, I want a, a happiness that's not contingent on people, friends of friends liking me, but there I was believing the hype, right? Well, because because there's 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 one thing you control and there's one thing you can't control. The one thing you can't control is you're human. So humans have dopamine and neurochemicals and, sure. and uh, backgrounds that you can't just erase. And so when people hit certain buttons, 
totally. these neurochemicals are And triggered. by the way, this is because I come from the Christian tradition, this is not me feeling shame about how I felt. I was just noticing. I was like, oh, interesting. I'm feeling so much happier and powerful. And I don't want my happiness or my power to be derived in the opinion of a friend of a friend. But here's the next part. The next day, somebody on Instagram was like, hey, this person's tweeting something nasty about you. Why I looked it up, <laughs> I'll never know. Why did I do that? What is that? Because I'm, I'm still feeling good from my show the night before, so maybe I'm looking for some salty with my sweet. I don't know. So I Google it. I look it up. I look at it. I, you know, I search it on Twitter, and I read it. And then I'm shocked that that good feeling of worthiness and happiness goes away because I read just as equally a stranger as the friend of the friend, but just some person that's saying, like, I stink, right? And I'm talking to my wife, Val, about this, and I'm just like, what is going on? I, I want to be outside of this, but here I am stuck in it again. And she was like, well, you went to that show and you won over the friend of the friend and you believed your hype. And then it's almost like the universe, let, let's just say reality, throws you this converse example, the other side of it, just as simply a tweet takes you into the down. And this is why we wanted to opt out of the game. So that suffering that I was feeling, and it was real from the tweets, it was a bunch of them. I, I, w when I was resisting them, it caused a lot of pain for me. And when I saw them as a teacher, as something that said, as Maya Angelou said, don't pick it up, don't lay it down. You can't believe the hype and you can't believe the nastiness either. You well, have to sort of be outside of it. And you refer to this in the, sorry to interrupt. I'm That's gonna, fine. I'm a, Interrupter. Uh, Me too. <laughs> the, the, you refer to this in the book in a couple of different ways. One is you say you aspire to be a, a witness, right? Use the word witness yeah. to what is going on. Right. So, so you feeling angry is not necessarily a bad thing once you start witnessing it. That's then right. You, then you separate it. Then there's nothing to judge because it's it's sort of like outside of it's separate from the witness. Well, this is an important thing I think for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian. It does not matter. You can practice identifying with what I call the witness, what some spiritual traditions call your soul. But whatever it is, it's your base awareness. So you were born and you were just awareness. This happened. And then people told you who you were. People told you you were a girl. People told you you were American. You were from Connecticut. People told you that you were a whatever baseball team, Red Sox. I don't know what Connecticut likes. But you inherited all this identity, right? Steve, what is Connecticut like? Connecticut's both Yankees and Red Sox. Well, I went, I went, I went with the underdogs, right? There's the underdogs? I don't even know. Who fucking cares? <laughs> but what I'm saying is none of that is inherently you. It's, it's what Jung calls the false self. We're building up this identity. What I'm saying is a lot of spiritual traditions can offer you a way, a method to identify with the true self or the soul, which is base, neutral, spacious, free awareness. That is just observing. So in that situation, I was going, wow, Pete's really, Pete's really upset about this. Right. You know what I mean? And that, this is a big thing. In Christianity, I used to pray for peace. We used to wish it upon each other. It would go, peace be with you. Doesn't work. Peace, does, this is Ram Dass. Peace cannot exist in the ego. That's, that's the story. That's your false self. That's who you are, right. where you're going, what's owed you, who, who gave you respect, who didn't. There's no peace there. Maybe for a second, 
Maybe for a second when you're eating the salty cheesy, you go like, life is good. And then you want a cup of water. You know what I mean? There's no peace there. Peace comes in, I'm going to stand back here and look at all of that happening. Right, so it's the difference between the Pete that was a Christian compared with the 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 witness who is observing this Pete with Christian values and maybe evolving into different values and so on. That's right. Because look at how much he's changed. Who? What was consistent? Right. A lot of spiritual teachers will say that all your, even your beliefs, even your ideologies, I say in the book, I might disagree with myself in three years and that's okay. This is a process for everybody. But we want to, it's, it's all ego. We want to know what clan we belong to, what tribe we belong to. I say like really going like, these are my beliefs. So I'm a Lutheran. I'm a predetermined, I'm a Calvinist or whatever. That's all just like a Patriots jersey. It's just like a, a group you belong to. And that feels, that feels good to your brain. But we're talking about head, heart stuff, not head stuff. So like even your beliefs, and I'm using other people, a lot of spiritual people use this comparison. You're the sky. You're the constant. And the beliefs and the feelings and the sensation and the story are just clouds. Because even in the book, which, which Pete was I? Really? You know what I mean? Was I baby Pete? Was I married Pete? Was I evangelical Pete? It's all just sort of, we could call it bullshit and be funny. Or we could just be like, it's just what's happening. It's just what's unfolding. Well, you mentioned in the book, I thought, an interesting uh, metaphor, uh, which is that... Um, you, know, you can view things as a curriculum. Yeah. So li life is a curriculum and you're just having these experiences where this, you know, inner self, whatever you want to call it, is is learning from this curriculum and that's the whole purpose. So somebody tweeting, you know, Pete sucks is just another lesson on this curriculum. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's why but that's you a hard uh, stance to always take. If someone, I, agree. I mean, everybody here gets trashed all the time everywhere. I know. And it's sometimes hard. in real time. Yeah. Yeah. But every day it happens. Every day I catch myself at least once pulling up a response window. Yeah. I catch myself. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. Who's, yeah. Who's the I and who's the myself? You know what I mean? That's like sort of the beginning. I know you know that stuff. I'm not blowing your mind right now, but there's something watching you going like, oh, James is getting really worked up. James is opening the window. You know what I mean? And yeah. then I can't, I can't deal with myself anymore. So you stop, you stop yourself. So something stops yourself. It's interesting. So, so, so there was another, um, there's so many, let me see which, which direction we're going to, we're going to go here. Well, comedy, this seemed like a, you started around 2000, right? Yeah, that's about right. Yep. So, so there must have been some. All this, these internal conflicts are happening. You know, religion, uh, you know, sex, your marriage, everything. What drove you to stand-up comedy? Was it a way to somehow voice this disconnect you were you were feeling? I think so. I mean, like I touch upon it a little bit in the book. Was that like I just didn't feel super uh, heard in my family. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they listened to me, but like, I sort of had to be big and funny to get their attention. So that's all I still have to, like when I hang out with my parents, I, I have to do an impression of them to them to get them to listen. <laughs> like my dad is talking, I'll go, oh, what? like, he's always like, what was it like working with uh, Jeff Applebaum? <laughs> he, he means Judd Apatow and I'll just go like, what's Jeff Applebaum? What was that like, Peter? Was he a good worker? And then he laughs. <laughs> And then I'm, 
Because what he's doing when he says Jeff Applebaum and what was that like, is it actually it can hurt my feelings. As I'm, as you, I'm sure the comics can relate, is you're like, how big do you have to get before daddy will pick me up? You know what I mean? And he's like, was that a big deal? He once went, on a scale from one to 10, Peter, how big of a deal is it to have a show on HBO? <laughs> <laughs> And instead of going, I thought this would work, <laughs> you know, I thought you would see me, I just go, you know, I just, I just do him back to him and make him laugh because there's no point in, in going like, Dad, in a safe space, I'd like to say that that makes me feel a little bit unseen right now. He's gone. <laughs> he's, he's looking at a butterfly that's flying by. You saw him on the show. He's 10 times as, well, if that's bad, then he's 10 times worse. If wait, he's good, he's 10 times better. Wait, the guy who played your dad on the show, that that wasn't your real dad? No, though? no. He looks like him. Though. Okay. Yeah. Except he's, he's much shorter than my dad. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes 
to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, i definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Your mom, who at different points in the show, yeah, I'm not saying your real mom, your your character's mom in the show, crashing, she makes a great comment when you perform at the Grizzly Pair. Uh, she makes the great point that he was telling the truth and you weren't. Yeah. So James is talking about there's there's a set where my parents come and watch me at this club, and I do clean comedy, and and Jason uh, does very very dirty comedy, and then my mom in this twist, who's religious. Thought Jason was better because he was he had something to say. Uh, I will even say, though even though he was so crude, yeah. it, it 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 was against all of their values. They made kind of a, a a deeper connection to what's comedy, right? And at least he he was saying something. It goes back to what Rick Dorfman said mm -hmm. to me. It was like at least we sort of knew what he was struggling with. Uh, but I will say that that is a Judd twist. That the first draft of the script was my mom was like what it would have been in real life was, I'm so proud of you for being clean. Thank you for mm. being a light in this club. That's what she would have said. 
And she would have said, that guy was garbage. I can't believe I had to watch that. But Jed is very, very good at going like, let's go a little bit unexpected here and have a brief moment of enlightenment for my mother and have her say something helpful to my character. But it's also critical in just in terms of the, the arc of your character's story is that you need you 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 need to be called into the extraordinary. You can't be absolutely. You, you can't just do what you were doing if you want to succeed. And that's what happens with with conversations like Rick. And that's why. And by the way, when it's happening, when Rick is telling me you're just another comic, my heart is breaking. Mm -hmm. That's another. That's a point of crashing, and that's a point of my book is that suffering, a divorce, a loss of faith, someone telling you that you're white bread and that you're just like a bad comedian. Obviously, we don't say these things in the moment. If someone is suffering or if someone listening is suffering, you don't go like, don't worry, suffering's grace. But in my experience, looking back every step of the way, and I don't mean things work out for a reason, like, ah, uh, yeah, but then I got an HBO show. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about inner transformation and these really difficult things. I have an external manifestation that represents my inner transformation, which is some success, right? And, and that's more American. Like, but, but Pete got told off by that manager, but who's laughing now? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what he was saying to me caused a chain of events internally in my emotional and my psychological, and I would say my spiritual world was, was shifted and grew because of suffering because of my wife leaving me, because of someone saying you're a snooze on stage, all of these things that you wouldn't ask for. Richard Rohr, this Franciscan prayer who I'm obsessed with, he's like, you won't change without suffering. Why would you? If it's working, if what you're doing is working, look at the human animal. You'll never change. If what I, if what I was doing, like sort of like asinine bad Seinfeld was working, I'd still be doing that. But luckily, somebody came in and really kicked me in the stomach. Well, because the, the interesting thing is, I think, let's say, you know, there's, a, there's, you know, comedy has many outlets, right? So there's the stand-up comedy in a club. There's where, where many people probably don't know you. They're just in the club. They're tourists, whatever. Uh, then there's stand-up comedy where everybody in the audience knows you. They bought tickets to see you, and you're right. going to do an hour. And then there's doing things like— We call like, that the difference between the road and touring. Okay. Isn't that a funny turn of phrase? John Mulaney doesn't go on the road. John Mulaney tours. That's it. <laughs> you know that's what I mean? Right, he's cause... like, it's good to see you still get out on the road. No, we don't. <laughs> the road is going to the comedy cafe in Milwaukee and being the middle. That's the road. <laughs> right, because the tour. <laughs> and that's that's something to be proud of if you're doing that. That's like fucking difficult shit. So, 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 and then there's also the, the next, you know, in, not necessarily the next steps, but then there's like talk shows, uh, 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 sitcoms there's all sorts of outlets for 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 comedy but the kind of asinine seinfeld observational stuff that's a ninefeld <laughs> that stuff will work in a club forever is the thing right and so you have to kind of also be pushing yourself to do the next level of your career and understanding what that is well so yeah what 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 drove you there because i see a lot of club comics after 20 years are still doing clubs. Right. I think that's a New York specific stereotype almost. Mm -hmm. The guy with the 15 that kills and you do it for 20 years so you can get drunk or get stoned or get laid. Yes. Yeah, so, that's really sad. It's, so, it is like the hero's journey. It's like there are sirens that call you to the rocks and one of them that's very seductive is like just find a really good 15 and work 
the clubs and just and kill every, kill every set. So that's what avoiding suffering, and uh, and then you can smoke weed afterwards. What's that? Avoiding suffering. Yeah. And to me, when my wife left me, not to get too heady about it, I realized that comedy, and this isn't in the book because it's a little too up my own ass, but like comedy is noble. People are hurting, and it's good. It's good. It's like a good thing to do. And when you're hurting and when you need a laugh, it really brought out that almost essential quality to stand up. And then like, okay, so you have these people's attention. Think about an audience. Don't do it before you go out on stage. It's good to think of them as one thing before you go out on stage. But if you afterwards think about the individuals, the heartbreaks that are in the audience, some of them are being cheated on. Some of them just got sober. You know what I mean? Some of them, they, they just lost a parent. Two bad there's a two drink minimum in most clubs. They just got sober. <laughs> two item. It's a two item minimum here at Stand Up New York. Um, but, and you really are, and I don't use this in a religious way, you're ministering to them. You're ministering in the way that someone bringing chicken soup is ministering to a sick person. So you can really relieve that tension. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to talk about piddly shit? Or are you going to go deep? Like how deep are you going to cut as a surgeon? You can just go like, most stand-up that I see, and I, I love to say this again to my people, is like most stand-up I see is just reaffirming what the crowd already knows. I fucking can't stand it. I can't. I, I'm sounding righteous, and I do it sometimes, but I can't stand it. People just go, isn't sex great? Isn't eating great? Aren't movies great? Or, or they're just shitting on things that we all hate. Aren't others the worst? Aren't, you know fucking in-laws, whatever it might be. Right. And they're just holding the mirror up and they're just going like, leave the same. And something happens when you're in pain, you realize that you, you have an opportunity to like really rearrange the molecular structure of a lot of people in a positive way where maybe, let's just say the energy can flow in them a little bit more pleasantly beyond, I know I'm being a little bit high-hoped about stand-up, but good no. comedy can fucking change this and make you go, and then the joy that might have gotten blocked and just stayed here and died, maybe it'll go all around here the next day. Because you saw somebody on stage that knows how to alchemize pain into pleasure. And I'm getting emotional, but that's fucking beautiful. So so, so let, let's break that down. So you could say something that everybody agrees, but you could say it in a clever way so that they laugh. Like... Ugh, don't the subways in New York suck? Here's That's right. why. That's right. Um, then like one level deeper, I think uh, you could say something that they all know but don't admit. That's so for, right. Yeah. So for instance, um, in, in your book, Comedy, Sex, God, you're very vulnerable about sexual troubles as you're, you know, first, first having experiences both with your wife and then after the divorce yeah. and you're still trying to come to grips with, with your sexuality and, 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 and religion and, and, and so on. So, so, so sexual difficulties is something everyone in the crowd has experienced, but it's I not like that. they all have conversations about it. I have a bit right now about losing my erection with my wife. And, and I go like, Guys, fellas, fellas, clap if you lose your erection because it's like the opposite of what they want. I think that's that. If you're on stage and not talking about losing your erection, shame on you. Fuck well, you. That's me and Mulaney joke that I want to put out an album with this fake comic persona that we made up, and the name of the record would be Always Hard, which I just think is like 
<laughs> that's what most comedy is doing. Is like I'm always hard. I'm always yeah. I'm always number one. Even uh, not, I, I understand not all comics are that way. That's a rare anomaly. Well, well, I think I think self-deprecation though is a tool of of the comic, and, and you see that a lot too. Yeah, and, and but but then there's another layer deeper, which is um, finding an observation that you say that then the audience realizes, oh. I've always been thinking that way. I just didn't realize it. That's right. So you have you have this one bit that I saw on one of your Conan sets where uh, you missed yearning for knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> so like Google, like now we just know everything. Like what's I forgot the specific. It's when Google was new. Right. Like back when we got Google on our phones and that was a new thing. Right. And I was starting to see, as we all were. It wasn't like I was Nostradamus, but I was just <laughs> noticing that everybody was googling everything now. Right. So you would say. Um, where's Tom Petty from? And uh, uh, now, if between the time that thought occurs and the time I know the answer, it would be like three seconds. And it used to be you would ask all your friends. Yeah. No one would know. And you would yeah. be left with this yearning. Where's Tom Petty from? Then you see the girl with the Heartbreakers, Heartbreakers T-shirt. Yeah. And, 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 and now, you know, Tampa. You run up to her. Uh, yeah. so excited, yeah. And then, and then, and so that whole concept is funny. It makes me think, oh, yeah, there is this yearning that I'm for knowledge that I no longer have. But then yeah. you have a punchline, and then, then that's how you met your wife, or then you get that's married. Right. Like, because satisfying right, that yearning is almost yeah. like satisfying this, like, <laughs> lustful desire. That's right. That's right. Because it's, it's the dehumanizing thing of phones. I think, again, I don't want to toot my own horn, but what I want to do is, encourage comedians because we have this platform even if you're not doing it consciously i think if you're filling your life with good thoughts and good ideas reading good books watching good films documentaries whatever listening to good podcasts if you put some good stuff in there you don't have to consciously try to sit down and write a woke bit or like a bit that's going to have a unique perspective if you're consuming unique perspectives you're going to start outputting your unique perspectives. So like, let's talk about that bit or or a bit that you did two nights ago in in the show that went well. Is it that you wrote down, you you thought of something or you read something in a book and you're like, oh, there's a, here's an interesting perspective I haven't thought of. And you'd write something down or do you, do you work it out on stage? Like what's the process? It's, it's a little of both. Mm -hmm. It, It really is like an outline. It'll be something that like I'm feeling strongly about. And okay, give, give it a specific example. The, well, the losing erection thing is, mm-hmm. is good. So I, the bit is basically, it's a new bit. It's about how um, I'm straight, but that doesn't mean that like I think men are gross or specifically like dicks are gross. So what's funny is like, so what makes me soft it's about men? a funny men, premise. Yeah, I think so too. But you're already going at like, if you want to go up on stage, I was just being, you caught me being proud of myself. No one's going up on stage. Or not a lot of us are going up on stage. You're supposed to go up and say dicks are nasty. And my bit is I jerk off all the time and I'm not going, oh, gross. You know what I mean? I'm slow with myself. I work it. You know what I mean? Like I'm giving a dick a hand job. And I love it. It's like one of my favorite things to do. But like we're so hyper masculine and we're so afraid of vulnerability and we're so homophobic that people who are straight typically want to be like, dicks, blah. And I'm like, have you seen a pussy? Like, they're not so great either. Like, it's all just genitalia. Do you understand what I'm saying? I th- Obviously, they're both beautiful in their own way. But like, I said, nobody, like, I don't care how straight you are. The first time you saw a vagina, 
most of us were like, maybe some Super Nintendo <laughs> first. <laughs> you know what I mean? So then, I, so this goes to the losing the erection thing. I was like, okay, well, what is it then? What am I not attracted to? Why am I not gay? That, that's the unpacking. Why am I not gay? Right? So then I go, male energy. I hate male energy. And I say this to the crowd. I go, I, women, not all women, some women have a lot of male energy, for lack of better terms, but women in general tend to have more grace and flow and spaciousness. It's built into their physiology. They have flow. I'm not trying to be funny. They flow. I don't say this part on stage. They're, That's funny, though. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it's true. They, they tend to be a little bit more open, communicative. They listen more. They're, they're that a lot of the times. Not always. But men, you know, I talk about men just dicks themselves. It's like the cigar of the body. It takes over the room, you know, fills with smoke. Men are just like, like, we love taking up space. And th then I bring up the idea about losing my erection with my wife. And then she says, it's okay. It's okay. Don't, don't worry about it. And then I get an erection because female energy turns me on. <laughs> like and her going like, it's all being emotionally vulnerable with me turns me on <laughs> and well, I go, oh, I'm safe. And then we have good sex. But male energy is, is like when you ask someone to take a photo and they take a thousand photos, just the same, you're just going like this and they give you the phone back and there's 10,000 of the same photo. That's male energy. That's what makes me soft. Well, <laughs> this is an amazing podcast, it's a new, by it's, the way. It's a new bit. I can feel <laughs> that it's not like crushing, but like, <laughs> no, no, no. My, just, that's my point is if I'm doing it and even as I'm doing it, I'm nervous that you won't understand what I'm saying. Those are stakes. I'm walking this tightrope where I'm like, oh, I don't want them to think that I think vaginas are gross. I don't. I, and, and there's even a, a small part of it where I'm like, oh, I want to make sure I sound like I'm a virile guy or whatever it is. I'm, I'm here and I'm doing the bit and I get nervous and I do no, it in no, a way I, that I couldn't do it if I was just like, what's up with RoboCop? But I think what's <laughs> happening here is also where all of us thinking of tags for this bit now. <laughs> That's probably like, it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's 15 comedians in the there, room. There's, like, there's a funny premise there, and I've already got like five tags that uh, that, that that I'm thinking of. But um, but 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 you bring up a good point, and you, and this happens in the book. You're the first time out uh, after your divorce. You're having some difficulties in the in this yeah. manner, and um, that's who I'm writing the bit for. The guy out there that's like. I say in the book that like usually when people get left by their wives in a movie, the next scene is a montage of them having random sex. Not my experience. Right, right. And that's that's kind of a funny statement on kind of the the Hollywood thing and kind of the the masculinity thing and the and our and our myth about it. But also there's an important there, there's kind of a connection to comedy or to to any kind of success in anything and and sexual success is sort of the primal manifestation of it. High stakes leads to often worse performance. Mm. So if you're in love with someone, That's sometimes right. it's harder to get hard. That's right? If you're if you're going up, uh, 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 trying to audition for the comedy seller or or a show or whatever, you might not perform as well because this you're, in yeah. your mind the stakes are higher. So how do you, um, after you know now, you know doing comedy and ha having all these different successes? In these high-stakes situations, um, how do you, for yourself, get comedy hard? <laughs> get comedy, <laughs> or or get comedy 
not as high stakes. So you get, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful question. Something that I, I think all the time is that expectation is the enemy of comedy. So if you're like, I'm supposed to do well, or I'm supposed to kill, or it's my late, it's my late night debut. These, it's also a spiritual idea. You start telling yourself a story and it's often a story that causes suffering, not actually what's happening. So what is, is a much more spacious and liberating space than what you think it is and what, it, what you think it's supposed to be. And I'm not trying to force the spiritual thing. I was saying in another interview and I got it from Eckhart Tolle. He talks about like, if a flight is delayed, that's just happening. And you have a choice to say yes to what is happening and just sort of melt into it and merge with it. You can honor your anger and your frustration, but really if you look and if you're in the witness, you'll notice that it's the story that causes the suffering. You go, the ticket cost this much. United did this last time. You know, they're a bunch of fucking, re you know, don't say that word. So <laughs> you get, the the story makes you angry. Similarly, in comedy, you being present to what is and not being attached to the story of how it's supposed to be. I've done Conan and the crowd is fucking garbage. And you're like, this is my late night debut. They don't know. It's a different story for them. This is, they had nothing to do in Burbank. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's okay. So surrendering and merging with what is and not resisting what is is a wonderful thing to do. So when I'm doing comedy, like something that I try to remind myself is I go, it's not about the words. It's not, it's never about the words. Uh, Gerard Carmichael and I were talking about this on my podcast. He says, it's a shared nowness with the audience. So when I'm doing comedy, I love to establish up top some way that I'm really there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and a lot of comics do this. What do you do mean it, that you're really... We do it naturally. You mention something funny about your intro or you notice that somebody's feet are on the stage or whatever it is. Just something to prove I'm also here. I, I don't think I understand so much. So you're saying you're, you're on the stage, they're in the audience. Are you trying to say, point out something that suggests... Something organic, an improv, a riff. So, so, that it, so that it doesn't feel it doesn't, to the audience like an act. That's right. It doesn't have to be a riff, by the way. It can be a beat that you take before you start. You'd be, you'd be surprised. I can get a pretty good laugh, especially if I'm doing a showcase show, just with a beat of silence up top, where you just go, where you just, you know, survey them, take them in, in a comfortable way, and just go like, yeah, I'm here too. And this has never happened. This assembly of audience and me on this day, it's never happened. It, and you sort of like quietly respect that. And then you start, it's, it's a powerful thing. It, it reminds me actually of one of your uh, co-stars on a couple episodes on, on Crashing, TJ Miller. Often when I see him do stand-up, particularly in different clubs, it's sort of like subtle. But the first thing I see him do, uh, and it took me a while to notice this, is that he just looks around the room yeah. and he tries to find immediately... Something. Like within seconds, some, some ridiculous thing. He did like, it on Crashing. He goes, the grisly pair. Yeah, Remember, yeah. he makes fun of the word grisly. So I saw him at one place downtown that was like a some old Wall Street bank that turned into a club. And he's like, um, are we in a 1970s disco? Because there was disco balls hanging from the ceiling. But it's like right away, he's like looking for the one ridiculous proving, thing. So I don't could, think TJ would say it this way, but he's proving that he's there. And you can do it with a moment or you could do it with a riff. And because we were starting Chicago with TJ at the same time, a lot of us learned how to riff. If you watch me and Kumail riffing, you'll see that we learned a lot from TJ. Mm. And, and something, a, a powerful thing in crowd work is, I love that. 
is you just go, I love that this guy is, is leaning. You know what I mean? It's, it's just something a little bit disarming. It's a, a wink to say, whatever I say, even if I'm rough with you, it's from this positive place. I love that this asshole, even just, I love that this asshole. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, you know. I love, a classic one would be, I love this asshole has his sunglasses on. But at least you're giving it that like, I love kind of thing. This asshole has his sunglasses on is different from, I love that this asshole has his sunglasses on. That's is, interesting. Is it, it was something we learned from TJ. So, so because I think a lot of the audience is very afraid to be called on, right? They, they, yeah. That's what they view it as. They, it's like they're being called on by the teacher in yeah. class when the and they are, and that's out. where hecklers come from. They're they're actually very scared a lot of the time. And then if you can demonstrate, it's like dealing with a with a barnyard animal. If you can demonstrate <laughs> that you're calm and that you don't need, so many hecklers are made by the comedian. You know what I mean? Even if the initial moment is literally you suck. Um, that's a, that's, that's just a spark, but then the comedian pours the gas on it or provides the kindling. Like, what would you say if someone yelled out, oh, you suck? I'd say, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on in your day? <laughs> you know what I mean? I know that sounds stupid. That's, no, that's funny because uh, let me tell you about my day. I have this memory. This guy calls out, you suck to me. And that really felt bad. <laughs> yeah, of course it did. So, you know what I might do too? That's another good choice. I, here's the, the true answer. I would be honest. And there's different Pete's. We all wake up with a Rubik's cube of who we are. There's all these like different, that. you know, so I don't know which one. And there's Alpha Pete and Alpha Pete would say, suck my dick. I, I, I was doing a show and I know you don't want to hear this face say that, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes that happens. Uh. I, I, I was doing my special taping and I was wearing the shirt that I was going to wear um, for the taping. And I said to the crowd, I was like, this is the shirt I'm going to wear. And somebody was like, Boo, no good, or something like that. And my, the night before my special taping, and I just was like, fuck you. <laughs> You're gonna get in my head? I just told you, like, that sucked. I didn't wear it. <laughs> but, but, but maybe, see, maybe, maybe that person was helpful. <laughs> but see, they, they, so everybody here just laughed at that, right? So, some, so often content like that, like hecklers could provide future bits. That's, that is true. The story of a heckler is a bit. <laughs> that is true. Often it is true. But I, I do think, like, you suck is a hard one to come back from, but I've seen this happen a million times and I can't get the word out enough to comedians is someone will say something, something. You're just like, I went to 7-Eleven and, and the guy goes, uh, 7-Eleven sucks. But all the comedian hears is sucks and like, uh, and he or she then turns that person into a heckler. Oh, we got a smart ass. You got something to say? I've seen that happen a million times because you're in a position where you can hear them better than the person on stage. And the next thing you know, that person, scared, is saying you suck because they yeah. think that's what they're supposed to do. It's, we're back to lost. You've given them the role of other. Huh. They wanted to be audience and audience wanted to be show. We wanted unity. That's what makes a heckler so offensive. So so I want to I wanna get back to that. Um, you know, that, that sense of you want to not that you want them not to be the other, but what are other ways I'm getting back now to the original question, which is what are other ways you reduce the stakes? You know, Oh, right. Uh, as, I mean, I, I didn't answer that question, No, but you did a you did a little bit, which is to say, put yourself there with them and also just enjoy it for what it is. Don't tell a story about what it should be. As comedians, we do this all the, all, all the time. I have a show on Saturday and it's outside and I'm already dreading it. I'm just like, that's not good. I can't. It's I can't. outdoors? It's an outdoor, I believe it's on a beach. 
And I'm just like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Why did you say yes to it? What do you think? For well, I could I could say maybe you said yes to it because you wanted the challenge and you thought ah, that would improve you. That would have been awesome. I wish. <laughs> no, it, it's it was a well well paying opportunity. Okay, <laughs> I, I know. Um, but that happens. Sometimes you say yes to a hell gig because you're like, well, that that seems worth it. Because and then when you're doing it, the game doesn't become about killing or not killing. The game becomes a game of chicken of like, I'm not gonna sweat. It's a corporate show. So like corporate shows, I play a game, and this is helpful. This is one of the ways I think it's helpful. Is is you don't go for laughs, you go for you can't make me sweat. That's so you stand there and you go like. <laughs> But then, because you know you're gonna do poorly, at a corporate gig, you'll always do poorly? not all, not all, no. But it's not gonna be as it's not gonna be as good as a theater. Let's just say that. Yeah. So you're gonna go down a few clicks just because it's outdoors or people are eating. That's what they said. They were like, people are. It's gonna be outdoors on the beach and people are eating. And I was like, <laughs> okay, Diff <laughs> different game, right? So you do Conan, make a different game of it. You're not gonna kill. Can you get that first line? Can you own the first moment? That's a fun micro game to play. How do, how, do you, how do you try to own the first moment? Other, just, other than the idea of let, placing yourself with the audience. To me, uh, a lot of people when they do late night, they're very, you can feel their nerves. So if you go out, so the game becomes then, can I go out and be, show, demonstrate that I'm comfortable, which is what we already sort of said. Can you give them a smile or like a hello? Just like a, so that's what I would do. And I like, your, I like the version. advice you also gave where you, you wave hi to Conan on the way. You, yeah, John, wave you said to John the band. Mulaney uh, uh, gave you that tip to wave hi. Berbiglia. Oh, Berbiglia. Yeah. Wave to the band. Uh -huh. Yeah. So there, you know, when I, if this is just practical, it's like when you do late night, don't think about your whole set. Think about the first joke. That's very helpful. Because you're standing at a curtain with two uh, union guys that are about to open it, like bulky guys. And... Uh, and I'll still catch myself, even if I'm doing panel, you're like, well, what, it, what are the five topics? Just think of the first topic. So, so let's say you go out there, what's the, what, that first joke is high stakes, right? Because that's gonna set the tone of the audience. I'm glad you set. brought that up because your first joke isn't gonna do, that's what I tell everybody that's doing late night. I go, your first joke isn't gonna work. And then the game is, so what the micro game then, like doing a potentially not as good as a theater corporate show, let's see, it could be great, I'll text you. But, um, the game becomes, can you do the first joke, not get a, not get a great laugh, not get the laugh that you're used to in a club um, because they're still getting used to you. You're this like foreign entity. Something else has been hosting the show this whole time. And then you come out and stand where, they're, where they were standing and try to command the audience. It's a very jarring thing. So what I tell people to do any late night show is have a one-liner that you just sort of let not do well. Mm. It's like a sacrificial lamb. They, I did it in that corner. I think I said, like, the phone book arrived. It's like, here, we printed a portion of the internet for you to throw away. <laughs> and it was fine. This audience right now is actually very similar. <laughs> You're doing great, but I mean, like, it's not going to crush. You know what I mean? It's going to be, like, joke acknowledged. Uh -huh. And then start. And then but you have it, permission you take, to kind of... Take that moment to be like, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not afraid that that joke... Did only okay because also i guess if you go immediately into kind of deeper stuff that you care about the audience doesn't yet hasn't yet acknowledged that they know you <laughs> so you have right. to kind of like introduce yourself you can't just say hey i'm this i, I grew up here 
That's you right. introduce yourself with that first line. That's right. And it's just like, okay, like like you just said the crowd did here. Uh they acknowledge that you're that you're up there being doing comedy. Right. We're in the audience. Now go. Well, <laughs> we want them to have compassion for us, you know, to understand that we're doing something difficult. But we can one of the great ways to to manufacture that is to demonstrate it to them and be like, I understand, I just got here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is weird. It's it, like Louis C.K. directly addresses this thing when he, he has a, a, a bit where um, he says, there, there's no reason for me to be talking to you now. I love you're, that bit. You're he a goes, bunch of strangers no, who are facing forward. There's and, no good way to start stand-up. I yeah. saw him working that bit out and he did it in Boston and I was there and he goes, there's no good way to start. And I was like, that is the best way to start. Yeah. Is to admit there's no good way to start. Do you ever feel like, you know, like you have a bunch of comedians like that and a few others where they've kind of hit every single topic you could possibly think about. It almost seems like now no one could ever start their Conan set the way Louis C.K. just did, even though that's the perfect way to start. I know it is. But there's, there's gradations and different ways to acknowledge what's going on. I, I have a bit that predates that bit actually where it's like, I'll be riffing and then you start doing a bit that's clearly a bit. And I'll stop and I'll be like, I know it feels like I'm breaking into your bedroom right now. Like it just feel, and then you do the joke again. You're like, so I'm from Boston. And you like climb <laughs> through a window. It feels like you're trying to get away with something, right? It's, so there are different ways to s express the same feeling. What we're talking about is honesty. The best way to start is honestly. Like I think a great way, it's, it's difficult. You need to have good bits to follow through with. But a, a nice way to start is like, this is a really big deal for me. And then you pause and then just be like, you, you guys don't care. Like, that's a funny joke. Like, yeah. that's, a, that's a nice bit to acknowledge the reality of what's happening. I, I like, um, so the, the late Brody Stevens has something yes. where. Yeah, it's exactly. That's a good, good. So he has something where if something, I love does, Brody. If, if something doesn't work, and he often bombs, it's like half his YouTube videos are him bombing, but he's best at that's the right. bomb. And he'll, he'll stop and say, Okay, rewind, and he'll go to the beginning of the joke and just tell it in a different way. Yeah. And I like how he addresses it Dane there. Dane Cook did that on his first record, oh, okay. too, where he's, it's actually a great example. It's on Harmful of Swallowed. He does this joke. The audience is still, they're nervous. It's the record taping show, so they're tense. He does the first bit. It does okay. He calls out that it's his record taping, that the joke only did okay, and he does the bit again. And that becomes that not every comedian, by the way, I don't want Stephen Wright to start doing this. I don't want, I don't right. want everybody to do the same thing. I'm saying one of the choices is to be transparent, but I'll give you an, an example of when it didn't work. I was in um, Peoria with Bill Burr uh, 10 years ago and I was middling and I was bombing. And, uh, and after like a couple shows, I think I just asked him, what I should do. I was, I just like, I'm so, first of all, I'm so sorry. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Don't, 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 don't. That's what he said. And uh, I was like, what should I do? And he just goes, say, well, that sucked. Well, that sucked. <laughs> Which is what Bill should do. <laughs> and it's true. And, uh, but what he was saying was be honest. And if you're bombing, call it out. Comedy is about calling it out. You know what I mean? It's not about ignoring the thing. That's why if someone drops something or something happens, always abandon the bit 
and go to the thing. It doesn't matter if it was your closer. One time I hawked a loogie on my hand and I just acted like that didn't happen <laughs> and just kept doing the bit. Because I was making a tape. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, so, but then the next Addressing set- Addressing what the audience is thinking is but, what you're right, saying. Exactly. But then I was bombing the next set and I went, well, that sucked, but that's not my voice. You know what I mean? Like, what I wish I had done was taken his advice and the spirit of his advice. And if I was bombing and went like, ah, God, I really, I really wanted you guys to like that one. I, oh, I thought I had you. I really did. And here's the other problem, though, and this is really to express some solidarity. There's no foolproof system, obviously. I, even if I had done that, I was too new. I didn't have any bits to follow it up with. Mm. That's what I really noticed. If I went, well, that sucked, even though it was like my favorite bit, the next bit isn't as good. If you didn't like that, you're really going to not like this one. <laughs> so I realized, I, like, Bill can go, that sucked, and then start like an epic bit. I didn't have any epic bits. So I just want to express a little bit of reality here. Like, there's no, there's no technique that's going to save you from not having better material. <laughs> So, so we're going to, uh, I know you have a, a time constraint. We're going to have to uh, wrap in a second, but there's, there's uh, one thing I I've been wanting to ask since I've seen this scene on crashing. So I forget which season it was, but um, you're, you're talking to Whitney Cummings. You're asking her for advice and you're, you're still in the young and up and coming phase. And she says, there's no advice. And you say, please, you must have some advice. And she said, okay, um, the star is the person everyone wants to be friends with. And I was curious, what do you think that meant? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't think, I didn't write that. Judah Miller wrote that line. Um, he wrote that episode. Um, and we riff a lot. So there was a chance that it was just something Whitney said, but I know that Judah wrote that line. He said, a star is just somebody that everybody wants to be friends with. That, that feels true. I think there is some truth to that, but I don't, I, I'm not sure if everybody, we mentioned Louie. I don't, I don't know if everybody wants to, certainly not now, but I mean, not every comedian is an example of the buddy comedian. When I interview somebody on my podcast, it, it, it is an unspoken intention that I want to be friends with them. I'm like, I want, when this is done, not in a phony showbiz way, some of my greatest friends have come from my podcast. So I'm going for like, I want to bond so hard and get so deep and true and honest and loving with you that we're friends, right? Uh, not everybody's that way. And not every star is, is that way. You know what I mean? I, I think there are, what we were going for, at least in part with that line was, no one wants to be Pete's friend. And I'd rather speak to that because there are a lot of comedians here and some listening. This is gonna sound cocky, but it's for a loving reason. I was at the Boston which is on, which was on West Third, and it was just a shithole. And I was handing out flyers, and we were holding our gloves up to the space heater so much that my gloves were melting. You know, you're just so cold and miserable. And you also, you're not that great. You know, you're not that great. And I remember this woman was there, and she was just kind of like a staple of the neighborhood or something. And she was talking about how she used to come there when Chappelle would drop by, and Chappelle was 16. And she was like, and you just knew, you just knew. And I'm, I swear to God, and I say this, you can keep these things to yourself as I did. I'm not saying you have this attitude outwardly, but it's okay to believe in yourself. I was like, fuck you, bullshit, 
because I'm right here. I'm right here, and you don't know. Fucking hindsight. Eat a bag of shit. <laughs> everyone, everyone loves calling it. I knew. I, I was like, there's a great comic right next to you. And I, I want everybody to believe that. And I felt like people didn't want to be my friend. That's what the whole show is about. People don't want you at the table. People don't want you stealing the spot in the lineup. There's all this animosity and ugliness. And you need to go like, I think I'm, I'm living up to my own standards. I'm making the art that I want to see. I'm, when I'm on stage, and this was true back then, believe it or not, even though it was kind of corny, I was doing what I wished I would see. I was, I was doing, if I was in the audience, I would have been like, this guy. And that's what I say when I'm bombing now, by the way. If I'm bombing this or guy. if a joke doesn't work, I go, if I was in the audience, I'd be losing my shit. And that's just a nice way of yeah. saying, it might not be for you, but if I saw someone talking about a forgiveness boner, <laughs> I'd stand up. Like Showtime at the Apollo, I would stand up. That's how much I would love it. So I, I was doing what I wanted to do. And I, again, quietly, nobody likes a cocky person, but it's okay. In fact, I would say that you can't really get past that next hurdle unless you sort of believe you can inside. I had this moment where I was doing some college tour with, I think Mike Britt was there and some other great New York guys. And, and um, I was backstage and I had this, feeling of like I had never considered doing anything other than other than stand-up and I was like I could never I thought this I was like I could never be on a bus we did this on on crashing I was like I can I could never see myself on a bus I remember where I was standing when I thought that and then the voice said well you never will not that it's about being on a bus but it like it's really true in my experience you have to see it first and I'm not talking about the secret or something metaphysical here. I'm saying my green lighting, my own dream, and acknowledging that it's not impolite to want to have a TV show or to be in a movie, to have a hit podcast or whatever it might be that's your ambition. It's okay to quietly, don't be an asshole, but to quietly go like, yes, that is okay. That's valid. It's not rude. It's not ugly. It's not impolite. And I'm not going to be rude, ugly, or impolite. But I am going to like quietly hold on to that little ember of hope. Because if you don't like fan that flame, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here, it's going to go away. So I started from that day on. This is very chicken soup for the soul. But I did. I started picturing myself on a bus. Whenever I'd see a bus, I'd go like, I'm going to be on a bus. I'd just see my stupid face. On have you have you ridden a bus since then? What's that? <laughs> have you gone on a bus since then? Yeah, the last couple times I was in New York, there were all these crashing buses. And and I'm telling you honest, the feeling wasn't yeah. It was just like wow, far out. That's really it's humbling and and amazing. And there was happiness for me without being on a bus, but there was openness for me in believing that that was one of the possibilities. I wouldn't be on this podcast going like, and I never was on a bus if I wasn't on a bus. It's not about being on a bus, but it is about a frequency you can maintain inside yourself. And, uh, and, that, and that's, that's a lot of what the book is about, is, is your inner reality. Well, the book I enjoyed so much, it's called Comedy, Sex, God. How, how do you want to say it? Is it no, you're doing things? it great. 
comedy. If you say sex comedy sex god, god, it sounds like I'm a comedy sex god. Right. That's but that's why the font is different. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's why Pete Holmes. Uh, Each one gets its own font. And I encourage people to wherever they get their HBO, watch Crashing. Go back, watch the Pete Holmes show. Watch your YouTube clips. Uh, you made it weird. The pot, your podcast. Uh, everything's great. I'm so grateful you came on the show. Uh, Thank you, James. If you're ever back in New York, I hope you come on again, I'd and we'll continue the conversation. That's great. Do you live here? Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody.